Voice America Empowerment Channel. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 159 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is helping family caregivers caring for children with mental health challenges. Now, here are some relevant things I've learned about family caregiving from Family Caregivers Unite. Family caregivers caregiving is especially important and difficult when it's for children with mental health challenges. Family caregivers caregiving for children includes being the eyes, the ears and the voices of their children and it includes advocating for them and navigating for them. Family caregivers um, caregiving often involves their wanting help that lies largely outside the scope of the healthcare system and social services, such as learning about other family caregivers' experiences or getting financial advice. A common concern, uh, and I've done an episode on this, is what will happen to my child when I'm dead? And that's a financial concern. Or spiritual support for themselves. Family caregivers caregiving too often cost them their own physical, psychological and financial health. Family caregivers caregiving is a hard road to travel. Having traveled it, family caregivers often look back to offer a helping hand to family caregivers just starting out, which is why our topic today, helping family caregivers caring for children with mental health challenges, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Marshall Corenblum. Marshall is psychiatrist-in-chief of the Hinks-Delcrest Centre, a children's mental health treatment research and teaching centre located in Toronto, Canada. He's also Associate Professor, Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. He's also on staff at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre's Division of Youth Psychiatry in Toronto, and he consults to a children's aid society. His main interests are in mood disorders in adolescence and in public education. He's been instrumental in producing educational videos designed to destigmatize mental illness in youth, and he's worked closely with schools and children's mental health agencies to promote awareness of psychological issues. He was chair of the Education Committee of the Canadian Academy of Child Psychiatry, that was for two years, and director of postgraduate education for the Division of Child Psychiatry, University of Toronto, for more than 10 years. So welcome to the show, Marshall. Thank you for having me. Now, question, question number one for you. Please tell us a little bit more about your professional career and about your own experience with family caregiving or family caregivers. Well, I've been a child practicing child psychiatrist for over 30 years, and I think my uh, desire to go into the field started off when I was a camp counselor, and uh, I did that for quite a number of years and had some very challenging kids under my tutelage at the time. And uh, it both frightened me and intrigued me to be the counselor of uh, teenagers mostly. And I think that had a big impact on my decision to go into child psychiatry. Uh, so I've been a practicing child psychiatrist and, and in the teaching faculty for about 30 years. And I am the parent of five children myself, ranging in ages from 21 to 33. Now, let's talk about the work of the Hinks Delcrest Centre. Um, what does it do? Yes. Um, so the Hinks Delcrest Centre is what we call a children's mental health centre located in Toronto. And it uh, does treatment, research and teaching. Uh, we help about 8,000 children and families each year from all ages, from birth to 18. Uh, we tailor the, the uh, treatment to each child's needs, and we are multidisciplinary. 
So we have psychiatry, psychology, social work, child and youth work, nursing, early child educators, and art therapists on our staff. Uh, we are affiliated with the University of Toronto Faculty of Medicine, so we pride ourselves in preparing the next generation of mental health professionals, uh, and we do some research as well. Now, please tell us about your work at the Centre and how it involves you with family caregivers of the children that the Centre is providing care for. Sure. Um, my specific area of interest is in the adolescent age group, so I'm the head of what's called the Adolescent Clinical Investigation Unit, uh, and that is an outpatient team that specializes in the diagnosis and assessment of teenagers with all sorts of um, mental health problems. Uh, what we do is three-part assessments, and this is kind of a metaphor, I think, for how we need to approach the problem. By three-part, I mean we see the teenagers and their parents together, then we see the teenager alone, and we see the parents alone. So we get a different perspectives on the problem. Uh, I also do school outreach, and I do consult to a children's aid society uh, where I'm involved in helping foster parents. Does the centre also have children who are residential in the department? Yes, thank you for reminding me. So not only do we have outpatient services, but we definitely do have inpatient or what we would call long-term residential treatment, where the average length of stay is about one year. Please tell us more about that residential stay. What, in effect, what kind of services are you providing in the residential stay that really wouldn't, for any reason, be feasible for a child living at home. Right. So um, the, the residential service offers round-the-clock care. It's what we call milieu therapy, French word for a milieu, meaning in the environment. So the treatment is, is provided 24-7. Uh, we have beds. We have about 12 beds in the city of Toronto. We also have a rural treatment facility, again, about 12 beds. This is all for teenagers located in a very small town in Ontario, uh, just outside of Collingwood. Um, and it, it's, uh, we provide schooling, mentoring, skills training, group therapy, uh, and the rural treatment program. The kids are responsible for raising the uh, animals and cooking their own food and making their own food. So it's a multi-pronged, multi-approach facility. Please give us an impression of the kinds of mental health challenges that the children um, come to you with, whether as outpatients or as um, dwelling, indwelling uh, persons, so to speak. Um, I'm going to be asking you later on to talk about the challenges, but I think it would be helpful if you would kind of name and just outline for us the, the, the actual conditions. Sure. Um, in child psychiatry, we have two broad categories, what are called the internalizing disorders and the externalizing disorders. What we mean by internalizing disorders are those mental health um, disorders that are internal to the child. They, they cause a lot of distress to the child, but the parents may or may not know about it and may or may not be aware of it. The commonest examples would be anxiety, so all the anxiety disorders, including phobias, panic attack, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and depression. So these are the, the internalizing disorders. And the externalizing disorders are so-called because it's the behavior that disturbs uh, mostly the people in the environment around that is external to the child. And in fact, the child, him or herself, may not be very bothered by their problems at all. The common examples here are what we call conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, or attention deficit disorder. Um, so we cover the full gamut from internalizing to externalizing disorders, um, including personality disorders and, and uh, those things, yes. We often hear about personality disorders, Marshall. What are they exactly? Yes. Um, so those refer to chronic, uh, somewhat ingrained habits uh, of relating to people that are maladaptive. So personality disorders uh, come out in the relationships that, that children have with others and get them into trouble. Usually it would be triggered by inappropriate anger. It could also, however, be inappropriate shyness. So either being too outgoing, as it were, or not outgoing enough. So personality disorder is chronic, maladaptive, usually learned habits of relating to other people that cause problems in relationships. 
Do those problems involve something that we also hear a fair amount about, things called high-risk behaviours? Do they mm-hmm. fit into that picture? Yes. So we certainly see kids that we would call high-risk, and what we mean by that is risk of harm to self or risk of harm to others. Risk of harm to self would be self-harm behavior such as cutting, burning, uh, other kinds of destruction to the self, and of course suicide attempts, uh, although our particular center does not have an emergency department or crisis service, but within the range of those previous disorders that I mentioned, we certainly see self-harm behavior, or risk meaning harm to others, so anger management problems, uh, oppositional defiant behavior, where they, the child may have been assaultive to a teacher, a parent, a peer, that kind of thing. Does that ever get the children exhibiting particularly high-risk behaviors into trouble with the law or justice system? Uh, Yes, and thank you for reminding me of of a service that I uh, forgot to mention that we offer, which is uh, we do have a group home for kids who have been in trouble with the law. So uh, in Canada, we would call them young offenders. So there's a very, very high rate of mental illness amongst children who get in trouble with the law. This can be for reasons of learning disability, um, limited intelligence, uh, problems with impulse control, like attention deficit disorder. So there's a very high rate of mental illness in kids who get in trouble with the law, uh, and we do offer services for those kids. There's a good deal of controversy, um, which uh, we won't go into in any detail, but there's a good deal of controversy about children and uh, the law. Um, in general, do those children, this is a, this is a, a rather controversial question, but I'm going to mm. ask it to you anyway. Is it your view that the ch- those children should really not be involved in the justice system, but rather treated by centres such as yours? Ah, excellent question. Um, if they have a diagnosable mental disorder, I would say yes. Uh, you know, one of the, the, the most difficult questions we try to answer is how much of the kid's behavior is can't and how much is won't. Can't meaning involuntary due to a mental illness that renders them not capable of perhaps appreciating what's right and wrong or not capable of uh, controlling their actions versus won't, meaning that it is intentional. Uh, you know, my view is if a kid has a mental disorder, it's largely can't, and in which case jail would be the worst possible place for them because the purpose of jail is, is um, punitive, is to, you know, teach a lesson in a punitive way and to make sure that the kid won't do it again because they fear that they have consequences, fear of the consequences, whereas mental health uh, emphasizes rehabilitation and understanding why the kid got into this pickle in the first place. So the answer is yes, I, I believe centers like ours are more suited uh, for kids who have a diagnosable mental disorder and who get in trouble with the law. Right. Now, on that point, I'm going to uh, take the break because this is where we have to pay our rent. So this is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Marshall Corenblum. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. We let so many outside factors mold and shape our lives. Technology, instant delivery. We live in an on-demand world. What's happened to the compassion, the kindness, a better pace? Listen to Might Radio with host Gabriella Von Ray. We'll bring that kindness and compassion back to our world. Our guests come from around the world and will discuss what's being done and what we can do to bring our lives back to order. Might Radio is broadcast live every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc 
G at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Marshall Corenblum. Our topic is helping family caregivers caring for children with mental health challenges. Let's now talk about the challenges of mental health conditions for children and their family caregivers. So, Marshall, please, please would you highlight the most difficult of the mental health challenges that children with mental illnesses experience and give us a picture of the difficulties those challenges those difficulties create for or are experienced by the children's family caregivers and if that wasn't a long enough question I also (laughs) want to ask you what the typical outcomes of these conditions are but difficult mental challenges Marshall? Yes So I guess it depends on your definition of difficult, and in particular what I would say is difficult to whom and for whom. Uh, In other words, as I said before, the internalizing disorders, anxiety and depression, cause the most difficulty to the child, him or herself. So depression interferes with academic performance, school marks can go down, socialization, the low self-esteem leads to poor peer relations, uh, and in a more extreme example, self-harm and suicide. Whereas the externalizing disorders, so the conduct disorders, the oppositional defiant disorders, cause greater challenges for the parents uh, because the child is often getting, causing problems in the community. So, you know, difficulty, I suppose, is in the eye of the beholder. Um, Certainly, you know, one of the most heartbreaking mental illnesses uh, that affect uh, late adolescents and, and adolescents is schizophrenia. So there you have a a child who perhaps uh, grew up, for the most part, looking normal, and then, as it were, the prime of their life in in late adolescence are struck down by an illness that interferes with reality testing. So uh, I guess the overall biggest challenge is what happens to a child when they get a mental illness is their developmental path, their trajectory is interrupted, and they're not able to uh, move on with independent living. And that's usually heartbreaking for the parents. Now, let me just ask you about the typical outcomes. I mean, you mentioned schizophrenia, for example, mm-hmm. in children. Um, what's a typical outcome of a, for a child that has been treated? And does it vary with types of schizophrenia if there are such things? Marshall? Right. Um, with all the mental illnesses, including schizophrenia, the earlier the intervention, the better the outcome. Uh, and in fact, there's a psychiatrist from Australia, uh, Dr. Patrick McGorry, who suggests that we ought to start staging mental illnesses the same way we stage cancer, uh, because the staging in cancer is highly correlated with the outcome, the prognosis. So in other words, if you have a stage one cancer, you know, the, the uh, survival rate is going to be 90% in five years. It's the same in, in mental illness in children. The earlier the intervention, the better the outcome. So we have very, very good outcomes, particularly for the internalizing disorders like anxiety and depression. Uh, we can get the individual uh, episodes probably 90%, you know, under control. And then learning coping strategies, we can, we're very good at relapse prevention as well. Schizophrenia is a little bit harder. Um, it's a brain disorder, and uh, still we do think that with early intervention, including psychosocial rehabilitation and medication, we can alter the outcome so that the, the um, person can maximize their potential. Let's now talk about the types of care that children with these conditions, the sort of conditions you've been talking about, and what in the end determines whether a child should be cared for at home or residentially, as I call it, with a centre like yours. So types of care, the the range of conditions need, and then the decisions. Sure. So the types of care we broadly divide into biological, psychological, and social. By biological, I mean largely medication. So there are antidepressant medications, anti-anxiety medications, antipsychotic medications. Psychological means all the talk therapies, 
So individual therapy, family therapy, group therapy, and the social interventions include school remediation, community intervention, uh, and perhaps faith-based counseling as well. Um, study after study shows that the combination of biological, psychological, and social interventions achieve better outcomes than any one of those alone. So that's our therapeutic armamentarium, as it were, uh, medication, talk therapy, and usually uh, environmental. Far and away, we try and treat a child in the home. We know that attachment, the bond that exists between parent and child is very strong and is a very powerful curative healing factor. So we try and reserve uh, residential treatment uh, for only when outpatient therapy has not worked. So if a child has significant functional impairment at home, in the school, with his peers, and the community, and the parents are not able to help the child, then we would think of residential uh, care, or if there's harm to the self or others. So, but they have to be, you know, not doing well in all of those domains before we would seriously consider residential treatment. Okay, now that leads us into the quote the role of family caregivers. And so from your experience of working with family caregivers in the way you do, what are the most difficult challenges they face? Yes. Uh, I would say they're twofold and they're kind of at, at, at two extremes. One is assuming too much responsibility for what the child is going through. In other words, guilt. So that, that would be probably one of the biggest challenges I think that family caregivers experience is, what did I do wrong? This must have been my fault. And the guilt can sometimes be crippling and paralyzing. Or I see the other extreme, which is, as it were, accepting not enough responsibility. So the opposite extreme would be denial on the part of the caregiver, or even worse, neglect or abuse of the child. So blaming the child for, for their difficulties and trying to punish the child. Um, so the two extremes, I think the you know, challenges for the caregivers that I see are assuming too much responsibility, guilt, or not enough responsibility, which results in denial, neglect, or abuse. Marshall, when you're confronted with one or other, that is to say, um, family caregivers who are assuming guilt for themselves, yeah. or family caregivers who frankly aren't doing their job as they should do it, yeah. um, how closely do you work with those, dare I call them, problem family caregivers? How, how do you work with them? How do you help them? Uh, um, well, that, that is the art of, <laughs> of what we do. But absolutely, it's, it's necessary to work with the parents because presuming that the child is still uh, living with them, they are, you know, very key, very important figures. Uh, guilt is probably easier to work with, uh, and, and I think we'll get into this a little bit later. You know, through education, um, through informing the parents of what does and does not cause mental illness, it's, it's usually possible to alleviate the guilt. Uh, the harder task, for me anyways, is when you have a parent in denial. Uh, now, sometimes, often perhaps, it's fear-based. So they don't want to face the reality of what the child is going through because uh, underneath of it is the guilt. So the denial is a defense against the guilt. They're just afraid that they won't be able to help the child. Uh, be that as it may, that's often a much harder uh, um, challenge for the, for the therapist, for the professional. And particularly when the parent is abusing or neglecting the child, what we do, what we find often is the parent themselves have been abused. And so that needs to be worked through in order to help them be a better parent. Right. Now, you mentioned suicide, a mm. very troubling and troublesome topic for everyone. Um, are there any ways in which family caregivers uh, are alerted by you for warning signals? Are there any circumstances which you would particularly alert family caregivers to? And are there signs and symptoms, so to speak, that you as a psychiatrist might also be watching out for regarding suicide risk? Sure. Um, things that, that we psychiatrists look out for and we definitely then therefore ask the parents to look out for are changes in things like sleep, appetite, energy level, concentration. So their previously well-functioning child all of a sudden is sleeping too little or too much, is eating more than usual or less than usual, either is agitated and restless or is fatigued and lethargic. 
So those are hallmarks, certainly, of depression, bipolar disorder, can be markers of schizophrenia when there are changes in uh, sleep, appetite, and energy. Um, red flags for suicide are giving away prized possessions. So previously treasured items, it could be a guitar, it could be a, a drawing, it could be a teddy bear, and all of a sudden the child is giving them away or, or you know, saying, I don't care about this anymore. Red flag, that's a warning sign. Uh, and of course, any talk of self-harm or suicide, which may be inadvertently discovered as in journals, um, you know, blogs, um, emails, a parent may stumble across this, that needs to be taken seriously and evaluated. So in general, what should a family caregiver, family caregivers do if they um, see any of the things you've been talking about? What's your sort of generalized advice for family caregivers when there may be a suicide risk for a child? Um, absolutely share the burden. In other words, don't take responsibility for trying to figure out is this serious or is this not yourself as soon as possible. So wherever you live, uh, most hospitals have emergency departments and crisis services. Uh, if, it's, if it's that imminent or that acute or the child has already done something, take your child to the nearest hospital, have, have an acute uh, assessment. If it's more in the realm of just talking or thinking about it, uh, so then it can be done in a slightly more elective outpatient way. But again, the point is get a professional opinion. Is this a matter of urgency, getting that opinion? Oh, oh I would say so. Uh, better to err on the side of caution, meaning overestimating the risk than underestimating the risk. And sometimes kids will do... Uh, they will self-harm, not meaning to kill themselves, but accidentally they do. Uh, one of the things that I, I talk a lot about is subjective versus objective lethality. What I mean by that is it matters more what the child thinks is going to happen than the actual method that they choose. <clears throat> what I mean by that is if the child takes one aspirin as an overdose, but they think they're going to die, that's more serious than the child that takes 100 aspirin but only expects that they're going to sleep for an hour and then they'll wake up. So it's the subjective lethality. It's what the child thinks is going to happen uh, that is the whole, the, you know, helps you determine how worrisome to be. Does that also read into the question of motivation of the child? And again, I'm asking a question that uh, goes deeper than certainly my knowledge. Well, mm. is there any any question of, for example, of attempted suicide to serve uh, as a sort of notice to parents, or are all suicide intents actually focused on the act of taking one's life as a child? Right. Um, I, I would certainly say there is a variety of seriousness of intent. So sometimes uh, the gesture or the behavior is, quote-unquote, attention-seeking, or it's meant to, to send an angry message to the parent. See what you did to me? Well, I'm going to do this to you. The, the trouble is, in real life, there's usually a mixture of attention-seeking and serious intent. Uh, it's, it's very rarely pure one or the other, and that's why professional opinion is so necessary, uh, because the parent should not assume responsibility for saying, oh, well, they're just doing it to, for, for attention, they're just being dramatic. Because if you're wrong, uh, you could be wrong in a very big way. And I guess it would also be right to say that as a family caregiver close to a child, it would really be very difficult to make that kind of assessment, whereas a professional, a psychiatrist, a healthcare professional who is uh, not directly involved with the child and can look at the situation, therefore, more openly and more objectively, is a necessary degree of objectivity in judging the risk. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. This is what we're, we psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, this is what we're trained to do is to come in, evaluate a situation like this with a reasonable degree of objectivity. Uh, parent, absolutely, as you said, being so close to the child and, and so loving, uh, may be blinded in one direction or the other. So, yes, you're absolutely right. This is what mental health professionals are trained to do, uh, bread and butter, and, and therefore they're usually fairly good at it. Right. Now, it's again time for us to take the break. 
This is Dr. Gordon Adley, and my guest is Dr. Marshall Corinblum. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, the Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host Jordan Kimmel is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc. G at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Marshall Corenblum. Our topic is helping family caregivers caring for children with mental health challenges. Let's talk about the ways in which family caregivers uh, can be helped by psychiatrists and why helping them is important. Probably the most important way in which psychiatrists, psychologists and mental health professionals can help family caregivers is by educating them. Um, I often use a metaphor with parents of, in medicine, what we would call referred pain. So guy goes into the doctor and says, Doc, I have this pain in my leg. It's killing me. Can you please take an x-ray of my leg or, or give me something to fix my leg? The doctor examines the person. Turns out there's nothing wrong with the leg, but there's a disc in the back that's being compressed, and the compressed disc is causing shooting pain down the leg, which we call sciatica. The leg is the child. The disc is the parents or the family. So often problems in the family can manifest as, as problems in the child, and the two are intimately interrelated and connected. Or for that matter, vice versa. There might really be a problem in the leg, but then the pain is so great that then it starts affecting the way you walk and your posture, so the back can be thrown off by pain in the leg. So again, there may very well be a legitimate problem in the child that affects the parent. So uh, what I'm talking about here is education about family systems. Children affect parents. Parents affect children. Uh, divorce is another big one that I see that we haven't talked about yet. You know, when, when parents argue, whether it's verbal or physical, it has always has a detrimental impact on children. So educating parents about the ways in which the family can affect children is one of the most important ways. Let's also stay with that for a moment. When there is stress in a family, you've talked mm. about divorce, but there can be financial problems. People, you know, the breadwinners lose their jobs. Yeah. Um, there's death in the family or somebody leaves home in a way that's um, unfortunate and unpleasant. Um, are those situations in which psychiatrists like you would perhaps generally say that your advice is necessary? Uh, and if so, under what circumstances would it be necessary? Right. Um, I would say sometimes it's necessary, but sometimes not. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, death, unfortunately, is very common, um, and there's nothing pathological, as it were, about bereavement or grief. So I will sometimes get a referral to me uh, of a, a child who's lost a parent or, for that matter, a parent who's lost a child, and I will refer them to self-help support groups. And I will say, look, you're, you're grieving, you're bereaving in 
the expected way. Uh, this is not fun. It's not pain, pleasant. There's pain involved. But we go by functional impairment. So if the child is able to continue going to school, relate to his friends, is eating, sleeping, uh, you know, energy is normal, then chances are it may not require the intervention of a mental health professional. Um, what we try and do with parents is help them to empathize with their child, understand what the child is going through, and most of all, follow the child's lead, so not to be too intrusive uh, and intervene prematurely. Right. Now, what are the most important ways in which psychiatrists help family caregivers with their challenges when their children are in residential care? Yes. So, uh, very important things is that uh, the parents, the caregivers, should support the team. Uh, Often what happens, so the child has been now removed from the home, as it were, it feels like a loss to the parents. Um, Often what happens is the parents can become jealous of the staff. So the the child begins to form a bond or a good relationship with the staff, and the parent is going, well, what the heck, that's not fair to me. That's going to be undermining of of the, the whole effort. So the advice I give to parents of children who are in residential care is, as much as possible, support the team. Most residential facilities still involve parents in the care, so there will be family therapy sessions. And, of course, advocate, still advocate for your child. If the child is saying, well, this isn't helping or, you know, the system they have in place is is not helping me at all, listen to the child and advocate for your child. There's a point of view that says that family caregivers can at times be members of the healthcare team. That is to say, when a child's living at home, as we've said, the family caregiver can be the eyes and ears uh, the, uh, and report changes to the psychiatrist or the family doctor. Yeah. And there's also that sense that when the child is in a residential uh, facility, then for the child to perceive that the family caregiver, often but not always the mother, uh, is treated as though he or she were part of the team might be helpful. What do you think about that? Uh, Yes, I I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I think that's wonderful when parents can be um, involved as part of the team because then the child is getting a consistent message. And one of the things that does not help children is what we call splitting. And that means when the child turns one parent against the other or the, the professionals in the residential treatment against the parents, and then they're getting mixed messages, even contradictory messages. That's very confusing for the child and not helpful. So absolutely, when parents can be part of the treatment team, whether it's outpatient or residential, uh, it almost always works to the benefit of the child. Okay. Now, let's talk about helping family caregivers who are caring for children with mental health challenges. Um, question overarching question is why is this so important helping the family caregivers and what are the types of help the family caregivers need most sure um why is helping family caregivers so important because kids are kids meaning they're still dependent on their parents uh now that gradually lessens as they hit you know middle to late adolescence but until the child is capable of living on their own and supporting themselves, the child is dependent on their parents. So therefore, a lot of, and the younger the child, the more, in fact, the help is given through the parents. So with very, very little kids, you know, in our center here at the Hingstelcrest, we actually have a preschool and infant team. Uh, so you, you might be asking, well, how can you do therapy with a three-year-old? Well, we don't. We operate through the parents. So the younger the child, the more important it is that the family caregiver is part of the the whole treatment approach. That gradually lessens as the child gets older, but kids are dependent on their parents until well into their teens and sometimes later. That's why it's so important. The types of help that family caregivers need, I have found, is education. Education about the mental illness and coping strategies, how to cope with the mental illness. Support. So, uh, you know, being uh, alleviating that guilt that parents feel. Showing parents that they're not alone. So we often will put parents and caregivers and families in touch with other families that are going through the same experience 
so they learn that they're not so uh, different, they're not so crazy, they're not so weird. Um, and empathy, that's what parents need. So education, coping strategies, support, knowing that they're not alone, and empathy, those are the things that family caregivers need the most. Do you find that um, family caregivers in the education sessions are concerned about, ask questions about, are worried about questions like whether I passed this condition, this mental health condition, uh, to my child, whether it was my genes that did it, whether the child inherited this from me? Is that a question that comes up? Uh, Yes, definitely. Um, I mean, the the reality answer is there are some mental illnesses for which there is thought to be anywhere from mild to moderate genetic contributions. So we know, for instance, that schizophrenia tends to run in certain in families. Bipolar illness tends to run in families. So there are good studies that show there is, there is evidence for some genetic contribution. But, you know, the more we're learning about genetics, it isn't as simple as that. And it's usually some interaction between genes and the environment. So there's a whole field now called epigenetics, which is how the environment either turns on the gene or turns off the gene. So just because there's a genetic component doesn't mean the parents should throw up their hands and say, well, that's it, we're, you know, we're done for, there's nothing we can do. Not true. Uh, but, yes, uh, we do see a concern on the part of the parents, and, and it is somewhat of a realistic concern. Does that, you mentioned guilt, and uh, this is one of the problems that um, family caregivers run into, and it's a very understandable problem. Mm. Um, does the question of guilt affect the way in which family caregivers interpret their contribution to the child genetically and contribution in the way that they brought the child up? Yes, the guilt can be crippling. You know, basically, if the parent feels that they are defective or flawed, either by virtue of the genetic or the child-rearing, it usually leaves the caregiver feeling impotent, um, helpless, worthless, uh, very, very crippled and, and anxiety, you know, riddled with anxiety. And what I would say, you shouldn't feel that way. For instance, even on the genetic side, yes, the illness tends to run in families, but guess what? So does response to therapy. So if the parent had bipolar illness and had a very good response to lithium, we know that response to medication also runs in families. So the good news is there's a very good chance that the child is going to do well on a similar type of medication that the parent did. So they pass on not just the illness, but also the response to therapy, and that's something we can work with. Um, But yes, the guilt can be very, very crippling, uh, and that's why it's important to involve the families as part of the treatment team. Very roughly, what sort of time would you recommend for the kind of educational programs that you're offering for family caregivers when you're treating the child for something that you would regard as reasonably serious? What sort of, I know you can't really measure things in hours, but just give us an impression of just how much is involved in the education of family caregivers. Um, are you asking about the duration of treatment? Yes, or the way in which you you stress it or organize it, how often you organize uh-huh. it, that kind of practical right. stuff. Um, well, you know, typical outpatient therapy usually is about once a week um, for an hour or so with either the individual child or the family. Now, that begs the question of what about all the other hours in the week? Um, so we sometimes, depending on the severity of the problem, we will recommend in-home support. So in other words, a child and youth worker or some other um, professional in child behavior can be going out to the home to help the parents at the most difficult times, usually bedtime, waking up, mealtime. So we will often recommend community or in-home support to supplement the one or two hours a week of therapy that, that we are giving uh, to the parent. How long that needs to go on for uh, is very dependent on the severity of the illness, the strengths of the families. can be anywhere from very, very brief. So if the problem is mild, sometimes one, two, three sessions will do it. But if it's more serious and severe, perhaps something like schizophrenia, it could be months to years that are, that are required.
Right. Now, this is just a quick question before we go into the break, and it sounds perhaps trivial, but it's not. There's a good deal of interest in dogs, dogs as therapy dogs, dogs as um, service dogs, for example. Mm. You know know this better than I do, but autistic kids that tend to run into the road and put themselves at risk, um, being tethered to a service dog that will only cross the road where mom says cross, uh, otherwise the dog sits at the curb and refuses to go and the child is tethered to the dog. That's a very safe kind of thing. How much, how much store do you set in the notion of, uh, set by the notion of dogs as caregivers in that sort of situation? Yes. You know, I think we are in the infancy of studying that, uh, but I'm very open to that kind of intervention. Over and over again, I see kids who relate better to pets than they do to peers. Uh, that's very, very common. And over and over again, I hear that, you know, the only thing that will settle the child down is when the cat comes in to sleep with them or, or they're walking the dog. Um, so, you know, there's just everyday pets that I think can be very, very therapeutic. And then in addition, as you're talking about, there are also specially trained pets, so therapy dogs, um, that we know, for instance, are used in the geriatric population. So we know in the elderly, uh, specially trained therapy dogs, first of all, they can be trained to recognize signs of illness. So dog sense of smell, uh, you know, they can pick up when a person is diabetic and they're about to go into diabetic coma. The dog sometimes picks that up before the doctors. Uh, and some studies are showing that dogs can even sense cancer. Um, so uh, on the mental health side, absolutely. I think that specially trained uh, dogs, cats, whatever animals can be very, very therapeutic. And even just having a pet, whether it's a guinea pig or a goldfish, can be very, very helpful. Right. Now, let's go into the break. Uh, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guest. Dr. Marshall Corenblum, you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel, voiceamericaempowerment.com. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week. Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Marshall Corenblum. Our topic is helping family caregivers caring for children with mental health challenges. Now, Marshall, I'd like you to tell us more about the things you would like to see done to help family caregivers caring for children with mental health challenges and also your messages. So, Marshall, in what ways would you like to see more help provided by the healthcare system to family caregivers caring for the kind of children we've been talking about? Well, you know, in Canada, there are only 450 child psychiatrists for the entire country. Um, in the United States, the figures proportionally are about the same, so multiply by 10. There are not enough child psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers. 
So one way I think uh, that I'd like to see more help provided is simply by encouraging and graduating more professionals, mental health professionals. Um, in addition, you know, the systems of care can be overwhelming and very, very confusing. So I think that caregivers need what we would call navigation assistance. Uh, in some jurisdictions, there are educational consultants that can help parents navigate through the, the overwhelming choice of treatment options. So assistance in navigating. Um, the system needs to be more user-friendly, more responsive to, to families. Uh, I know that often we insist, for instance, that parents come to our center. And sometimes I feel guilty about that because I know they can't afford the, the bus transportation. So uh, I have done house calls. And I think we professionals need to be more flexible in meeting caregivers and families where they are rather than insisting that they come, you know, 9 to 5, Monday to Friday. Uh, so I think we need to go out more into schools and homes and meet the kids and families where they are at. Uh, and, of course, um, uh, financial assistance. So, uh, again, in certain jurisdictions, psychiatrists' services are covered because they're doctors, but psychologists and social workers are not. This automatically then excludes many, many families from mental health care because they can't afford it. I'm going to just ask you a subsidiary question to that in a way, and that is a previous guest had suggested that there would be value in offering some kind of education for children in schools. Uh, with he, The guest was really talking about more awareness on the part of children of really what uh, you know, mental illnesses are and just a, some sense that um, these do occur and they are understandable at some level anyway by children. What do you think about that? Uh, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm a very, very big supporter of outreach and education into the schools. Uh, you know, this past year, a colleague of mine and I went out to a grade two class and we took some puppets with us. And our goal was to destigmatize seeking help for mental health care. So we did a little role play of when would you um, seek help from a therapist and what is therapy like? And with young children, it's play therapy, so it was kind of an easy sell. But, but basically, I'm a very strong supporter of mental health curricula in the school to educate children about recognizing the signs and symptoms, uh, certainly rec helping teachers recognize the signs and symptoms and destigmatize the whole thing. Right. Now, what's your message for healthcare and social service professionals regarding more help for family caregivers? Um, Number one would probably be listen to the parents, listen to the caregivers. I think that we professionals sometimes get on our high horse or we get holed up in our ivory towers. And, uh, you know, we also have the holy grail of confidentiality, which is important, but I think at times is a bit overrated. Uh, and over and over again, I, I listen to parents who feel excluded, disempowered. Uh, you know, they just feel as if they're left out of the equation. So the message I'd give to the professionals and healthcare providers is listen to parents and involve them. Allow them to be part of the team. And would you go so far as to say that that includes explaining things to parents? Uh, a reason I'm asking you that is that I have heard, um, haven't we all, of stories where parents have had their questions not answered or been told, no, that's a private matter, we can't discuss it with you. Um, there may be good reasons for that, there may not be. But hmm. you've mentioned privacy being perhaps overused at times. What's hmm. the response that you would like to advise a family caregiver who finds themselves not being responded to when they are asking a question? What's your advice to them? Yes. Um, keep hammering away. Uh, keep saying, look, uh, I don't necessarily need to know what is going on between my child and you, but I want to give you information. I want to tell you that last weekend my child stayed at home all weekend and didn't go out with his friends. I don't know if he's telling you that. You need to know that. So all I, I would ask professionals is to listen to the parents, and that doesn't mean divulging secrets. You know, on a larger systemic issue, I think that in many jurisdictions, the legislation around confidentiality and consent, the pendulum has swung too far 
in the direction of the rights of children and not enough uh, in terms of the responsibilities of children and or the rights of parents. So uh, a lot of kids, particularly teenagers now, have to give consent to treatment. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of kids are not in that mindset, I think, as you alluded to before, uh, and that's a problem. Right. Now, what's your message for family caregivers and their family members? Um, and particularly, a sort of sub-question is, what's your message of hope? Yes. Um, I, I would say to the family caregivers, hang in there. Um, natural development and resilience is a remarkable and wonderful thing. Uh, and, and over and over again, I'm surprised by how well children do in the face of tremendous adversity and trauma and, and horrible things like tornadoes and fires. And, and, and we find that the kids, they, they come out of it somehow. So we need to be learning much more about resilience. But to the parents, to the family givers, hang in there. Advocate for your child. Seek peer support. So in other words, take advantage of, of self-help groups so that you know you're not alone. And yes, seek expertise, but with a degree of skepticism. You know, ultimately, if you feel you're not being heard by the professional, I'd say go to a different professional. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Just on the same uh, real, really the same theme of where you go to get answers to your questions, have you any views on the kind of information that exists on the Internet? Uh, the Internet... <laughs> is a force for great good and great evil. Uh, somebody once compared the Internet to nuclear power. You know, it can be used to create uh, radioactive medicines that help, you know, defeat cancer, but it also fuels the atomic bomb. Uh, the, the Internet, uh, I think we need to do a lot more in terms of promoting what I would call Internet literacy amongst both, ch particularly children and parents, but mostly children. We teach our kids, look both ways before you cross the road. I would say we have to teach our kids, look both ways before you cross the Internet highway. Uh, there are lots of predators and bad people and bad information out there. I mean, there are horrible websites out there about how you can hurt yourself better and how you can commit suicide better. There's pro-anorexia sites about how you can starve yourself better. So there's a lot of really damaging, destructive stuff out there. We need to promote media literacy uh, amongst our children. Just a quick comment about a previous episode in which um, a mother um, had come to the conclusion that computers are very helpful for her child or children with uh, ADHD and similar problems, mm -hmm. but she realized that her child and others would be very vulnerable to the bad things that go on on the internet and via computers. So she's created something whereby the family can, or the family caregiver can keep a watchful eye on the mm. communications, but at the same time encourage these children to communicate among themselves. How do you feel about that? Yes, I think that's a very reasonable compromise step to take. Um, you know, one of the first things I will often recommend to parents is move the computer out of their bedroom into a common area, the living room, you know, you know some, the dining room, something like that, exactly so that the parents can keep a bit of an eye on things uh, and use the computer with the child uh, rather than leaving the child to their own devices. So I think that's a very good, uh, reasonable compromise. Right. Now, we are unfortunately... Uh, coming close to the end of this episode, but I just want to say, if I can say this to you, this, of course, is on the internet, uh, yeah. but I want to assure you that this is an example of how, I believe, useful the internet can be yeah. and uh, how useful someone, you and people like you can be to family caregivers, giving them Information which is trustworthy, information which they can understand because you've taken care to explain it to them, and information which they'll find useful. Yeah. Um, so I would like to thank you very much for that. You're and very welcome. Applaud you for what and your colleagues for what you're doing, and obviously on behalf of all of us, uh, say to you, keep it up because healthcare. Is challenged not only where we're speaking, but across North America in various ways and across the world in various ways. And so the idea that um, 
healthcare professionals are working closely with family caregivers uh, and the the idea of team is profoundly important as a movement because, and this is where I'm going to be just mildly political, we know, because there are there's data to show it, that the work of family caregivers actually subsidizes the healthcare systems of many, many countries simply because if the healthcare system had to pay for all this caring, um, there would be a huge cost. Uh, so yeah. in that sense, they're unpaid members of the team uh, let's recognize them for what they do and help them in the ways, Marshall, that you have done in this episode and that you do in your work and that all your colleagues at the center do in their daily work. So thank you very much for that and every success to you all. Thank now, you. I'd also Okay, now I'd also like to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode and from our listeners i'd like to hear from you ideas about topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show and in our next episode we'll talk about family caregiving peer support and mental health and addiction challenges so please join us same time same spot on the internet talk to you then thank you again for joining us this week for family caregivers unite with your host dr gordon atherley please tune in again twice every week Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful.